0: right. Good morning, everybody. I was a little bit nervous wearing my shorts today because I have um, very unattractive legs. And then I saw how white Dougs were and I felt much better. So Um, it's kind of funny, actually. Years ago, I used to wear shorts um, almost every Sunday. It didn't even matter if it was winter. That was just the way I dressed. Um, And somebody uh, shared with me uh, that it was uh, distracting to them when I was preaching in shorts. And um, not just because my legs were unattractive, but <laughs> for other reasons as well. Essentially for them, you know, they came from a much formal, ch- more formal church background and it was just very awkward for them. It was very uncomfortable. And so uh, at that point, I decided to uh, stop wearing shorts. Um, and, s- well, I wore pants still, but um, stop wearing shorts and wear pants uh, going forward. Uh, and so I did that. Well, then people came to me and said, who are you trying to be? You're dressing all up on Sundays now? I was like, it's jeans and a t-shirt. I'm not that dressed up, but for me. And so what I realized is sometimes uh, you you do your best to try to... um, live in such a way that makes everybody happy, but you can't always do that. And to a certain extent, that's what Paul's gonna be talking about today. So if you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter nine, you'll be able to follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand in the air, and one of these uh, gentlemen will bring one to you so you can follow along with us. Welcome to keep that Bible if you need it as well. Uh, But we're just, we're working our way through 1 Corinthians. I think Cody did a great job last week, actually kind of cool the last couple of weeks, On Wednesday nights, I've been having other people teach, and so uh, Doug preached for the first time a Wednesday or so ago, and I have now named him the meme preacher because he used a bunch of memes in his slides, which was awesome, did a good job. And then Cody last week, I think, did a great job as well of laying out for us chapter 8. I do want to review chapter 8 just briefly because chapter 8, 9, and 10 all go together. Paul's been asked a very specific question in chapter 8. And that question is uh, whether or not you should eat food sacrificed to idols. That was the question. So in chapter 8, he's going to essentially say two things. The first is, uh, the reality is there there is no such thing as 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 gods apart from the one true God. And so all of these idols that they're sacrificing this meat to, there's no real gods behind that. So it's not a big deal if you eat the meat. But he's going to give an exception there. He's going to say, unless it's causing one of your brothers to stumble. And so he asks you to imagine a scenario where they used to worship some sort of idol. And then they came to Jesus Christ. And for them, it might be a stumbling block to see you eating meat sacrificed to idols. The way Cody put it last week is we should be willing to lay aside our freedoms for the good of others. So that we don't stumble other people. And so that's the first piece of Paul's answer to the question. This willingness to lay aside your freedoms so you don't stumble other people. Well in chapter 9, Paul's going to use his own life, his own ministry in Corinth as an example of a time that he did that. And he's going to give us through that another principle very similar. It's that you should be willing to lay aside your freedom For the good of the gospel. In other other words, if it's going to, the things that you have freedom to do, if it's going to somehow hinder the gospel message at a specific time, maybe you set your freedoms aside in that circumstance. Uh, And then in chapter 10, he'll go back to this idea of idolatry, because he doesn't want it to seem like he's soft on that by saying you have the freedom to eat meat sacrificed to idols. He reminds us in chapter 10, idolatry is the thing that led the nation of Israel astray. So you still have to be careful with idolatry. And then in chapter 10, he'll come down to his final answer, which is this, which is more of a principle, really, than telling you exactly what to do, which I think is great. But the principle is this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, just make sure you're doing it for the glory of God. That that's the reasoning behind the things that you do. So that's ultimately how he's going to answer the question. Uh, But let's look today at his his own example of how he lived this out. Now, again, the great thing about this, he's bringing these principles. You don't want to look at it in the situation and say, Uh, You're going to look at Paul's situation. You say, well, I'm I'm never going to be in that situation. I'm not an apostle. I don't travel around. I don't have to worry about the things that Paul had to look at. That's why we want to look at not what his circumstances are so much as the principle on which he bases his decision. So uh, chapter 9 now, Paul's going to tell about his time in Corinth. uh, And um, the chapter will divide up. The first 14 verses is him giving a defense Of the fact that as an apostle, he deserved, had the right to be paid to do the ministry that he did in Corinth. And then from chapter 9, verse 15 to the end of the chapter, he'll then explain why he didn't demand that of the church there. So, verse 1 Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I have, uh, not have a right to refrain from working. So again, Paul's making a defense of his apostleship. Now there's probably a double-sided issue going on here. There probably actually are people in Corinth who maybe don't see Paul uh, as an actual apostle because he wasn't there with the original guys. And so, you know, it seems as if they've met uh, Simon Peter at some point and maybe met some of the other apostles. Maybe they've come through Corinth at some point and they think to themselves, well, those guys are real apostles because they were with Jesus from the beginning, Paul, he's kind of a latecomer. I'm not sure if he really fits into the apostle category. I'm not sure if he really fits in within that group. So there's probably a piece of that going on. Uh, There is likely a piece of something else, which you'll see uh, later on in the passage. And that is that it seems as if the Corinthians had made a regular habit of paying other people that came through for the ministry. They just weren't paying Paul. So there probably is, behind Paul's overall point, a little bit of a sore spot that he's actually trying to work through as well. There's probably some real struggle there that he's actually having. Uh, But on top of that, he really wants to just first make this case that as an apostle, he deserves uh, to be uh, paid for or supported by the ministry. So he gives here a couple of reasons why he says he's an apostle uh, in... um, Verse 1 there, he points out, I've actually seen Jesus our Lord. And you might remember he was Saul on the road to Damascus and Jesus appeared to him. And so he's actually seen. Jesus. He's actually had this visual with Jesus. And so that was one of the marks of one of the apostles, the original 12, is that they had been with Jesus. Well, Paul says, I've actually been with Jesus. A Further evidence of the fact that he's an apostle, one sent out by Jesus, and that's what the word apostle means, one that was sent out. And of course, Paul was commissioned and sent out by Jesus. But as Paul sent out to teach the message of the gospel, the evidence that he's an apostle, he says, is the church exists in Corinth. But he went to Corinth where there was no church. He preached the gospel. Now there is a church. He says to them, to that church, he says, you guys are the seal of my apostleship. Now we could get into a larger discussion of what that means in today's terms of, of what an apostle is and what it isn't. There's a, a number of different views on that. Uh, just to simplify it for you, uh, some people say there, there's big A apostle and little A apostle. So big A, the original 12, and yes, we begrudgingly accept that Judas was one of those. And then there's the little A apostles, is basically anybody who's sent out, and so maybe in today's term, you might even think of it as a missionary. And the reason they have to make that distinction is they would like to say the original 12 is the only ones that were really apostles, but there's no such thing as apostles today. That would be easy if the original 12 were the only ones who were called apostles, But you'll find in various places in Scripture, there are other people who weren't part of the 12 that the Scripture calls apostles. And so that's why they've tried to make this designation, big A apostles, the original 12, and little A apostles, just some random people that Jesus sent out to do the exact same things as all the other apostles. So they're making that distinction. So to put that into more modern terms, I would say... Pretty much anybody who has been sent out in ministry, whether it is somebody who is sent out to plant a church, sent out as a missionary, or within a specific church, sent, and I would say this, you know, although I didn't um, move here for this purpose, I would say I, I am a missionary to the city of Cheyenne. That whatever church you're pastoring, any pastor, they're a missionary to that city. They're on God's mission to bring the gospel to that city. And so that's the way I view it, but it's not one that I would make a big deal out of uh, because that word for some people, apostle, is very important, particularly when we get into later chapters and it's described as a spiritual gift. And then if you accept that, you then have to accept this whole idea that the gifts continue today. And for some people, that's a a very dangerous area they don't want to get into. So it's easier for them to just imagine uh, this big A apostle, the original 12, little A apostle, the rest. And they would say, well, Paul, you're an apostle, but you're a little A apostle. You're not a big A apostle. And so kind of this little struggle that he's having there. But he's trying to explain, well, you might think that, but just know I've seen Jesus and he's the one that sent me out. And as one sent out by Jesus, I came to your town and you're all going to heaven now. You're welcome. (laughs) So he lists out now in verses three through six there, he lists out uh, three things, but I think they're ultimately one thing that he sees as his rights. Do we not have a right in verse four to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife. And then he says it in the negative sense in verse six, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? And I think ultimately those are the same thing. Uh, He's making the case that they have a right to make their living from the gospel. And as such, that financial provision should provide for them food and drink, And it shouldn't just provide for them, but it should provide for their family. As it says here, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? He even throws up some examples there. The rest of the apostles have wives. The brothers of the Lord have wives. And somehow Cephas, who is Simon, who is also Peter, which is very confusing. Pick a name. (laughs) He has a wife, which we know because we've met his mother-in-law in a previous book of the Bible. I don't know why he's separated out from the the rest of the apostles there. Uh, But he's just making this point, those folks have spouses. Did you provide for them when they came to town? And then again, that that third one there, Barnabas and I, shouldn't we not have to have another job? Now think of it in terms here, in just some very practical terms. For him to do ministry in the way he was doing because he was going out all over the world, he's got all this cost to travel to these places. And then he's got to eat and live, he's got to have a place to stay, all of these things when he gets to those places. And he's making the argument that since you're the ones I'm ministering to, you're, you're the ones that should be providing for the work that I do. And that's the argument that he's making. He's just kind of setting all of this up. He's going to give us now uh, seven examples of why that's true in verse 7 through 14. So he's going to make a very strong case. Uh, What I think is funny is most of the time when you hear this chapter preached, people will stop in verse 14, so you have a week to think about, shouldn't you be paying your minister, right? Right? But Paul's actually just using that as a setup to explain why he didn't use that right that he had. So we don't want to stop in the middle of this. Um, I, I think the principle is true. I think it is right. I do think it is right, as Paul is making a very strong case here, that those who have dedicated their life to preaching the gospel should be able to, when possible, be provided for in that. But statistically speaking... We know that that's not always possible, that there's a good number of pastors and missionaries who aren't able to do that, and so they end up working like Paul as tent makers or bivocational. Uh, They'll have uh, this job, this full-time job or a part-time job to somehow provide for their needs uh, and something that I think is uh, 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 an important thing for them uh, in that moment to realize for them more important than anything is that I can preach the gospel. And if I have to work another job to make that happen, that's what I have to do. And it's weird for me to say it because I'm currently in a situation where that isn't the case, where the church is providing uh, for myself and everybody that works here and providing for our families. And so it is weird for me to say those things, but I think it is true. uh, And I think those things out of experience that I've gone through phases in my life where we did it that way. And so when I first started in ministry, uh, in youth ministry in Missouri, we did that until we went broke. And then we came here, and I basically said, I will never get paid by a church again. I'd rather just work a job and do, uh, use that job to support my preaching habit. And, um, and so I started out here the first four years, volunteer multiple times. Pastor Ron would say, Sean, I'd like to hire you. And I would say, Psh, you can't afford me. And it's just, I just didn't want to be in that situation again. Um, But ultimately, I came to this point where I was having conflicts between my full-time job and what I wanted to do in ministry. The two were causing issues in it. So at some point, I decided I had to pick which one I really wanted to dedicate myself to. So then I started working full-time here and part-time someplace else and then ultimately got to the point a number of years ago where this is the only job that I have. Uh, In an odd sense, though, I kind of missed the bivocational because I found myself around a lot more unbelievers, Sometimes because I work in a church, well, you know, maybe some of you are unbelievers and I just don't know it yet, but um, (laughs) that's possible, right? But uh, I just, when I was working, particularly in the military, I was around some different types of people. Let's just put it in a nice sense there. And I got to learn all kinds of new words and... uh, see different ways that people choose to live their life, and it became very helpful for me because that then became a ministry to me. I was able to minister to people there and, and lead people to Christ in their office and things like that, and so I kind of missed that piece of the ministry, uh, but there's a defense to be made that those who are, are serving the Lord full-time should be provided for by the people who they're serving. Paul gives us here seven examples now, starting in verse seven. I'll read through the whole thing, and then I'll come back and hit them real quick. Uh, Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope, the thresher uh, to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If, to others, uh, if others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat of the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel so laying out all these different illustrations there uh, he's just going to go boom 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 and explain all these situations where people do work they get paid people do work they get paid it should be a very common simple idea and so his first one here uh, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense now in america we say we have a volunteer army What that means is they weren't drafted in, currently, there are times, but they weren't currently drafted into the military, they volunteered, but understand those volunteers still get paid, right? They get paid a wage, they get paid a housing allowance, they get paid a subsistence allowance and food, and then they get paid, um, on top of that, if you want to call this pay, they get health care. So there's a payment for their services. Even though they volunteered for the job, they still get paid. On uh, the same sense, his next example, uh, one who plants a vineyard, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit. And so you, if you were to plant your own garden, you plant that for a reason, you want to eat the vegetables that come out of it. Unless it's rhubarb and squash, you're just going to give that to everybody else. You just... You take your one little piece, and that's all you really needed for the year, but it's kind of taken over, and so it fills our counter out there. Not that I'm giving you permission to bring us all your squash, just so you know. Um, his next example, who tends a flock and doesn't use the milk of the flock? So again, he's talking here about a shepherd. He's then going to move beyond the human examples in verse uh, 8 through Uh, 12 there, verses 8 through 12, he's going to use the example from the Old Testament law. Uh, It's really kind of an odd example, but in verse 9 he says, he quotes here Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And he asks this question, God's not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? So great job of comparing uh, people in ministry to oxen there, Paul. Paul. Uh, which is true, actually, because I've actually told people in the past that I'm kind of like an ox or a donkey. If you just point me in a direction, slap me on the butt, I'll go that way forever. That's kind of what God's done with me. He says, here, preach this. And I'm like, okay, and I'll just keep doing this over and over and over again till he tells me to stop, right? But uh, so the example from the Old Testament law isn't really talking about people in ministry. It literally is talking about an ox When you have an ox and it's threshing, uh, you want the ox to be able to eat so it has the ability to do the work you want it to do. And of course, you would apply that universally to any type of livestock that's working for you. Of course, you let any of your livestock eat. That's how they work. They need that in order to do the work you need them to do. Paul's basically saying, if he's that concerned about your ox, he's probably just as concerned about his apostles, his missionaries, his prophets, those people that he sent out into the world. So now he's using that that version from the law there. He's going to make his next example uh, in verse um, 5, I'm sorry, in verse uh, 12 there through 13, uh, if others share the right over you, so verse five or verse 12, the fifth example, is he's saying to the church in Corinth, you've been doing this for other people. Did you never stop to ask yourself, maybe we should pay the Apostle Paul and Barnabas who came here and started our church? And then he's going to use a sixth example in verse 13. Those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple. Those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar again, pointing back to the Old Testament, to the priests and the Levites, that when people would bring their sacrifices to the priests and the Levites, a portion of it would be burnt on the altar before God, but a portion of it would be um, given to the priests and Levites so that they had food for themselves and for their family. It was always built into God's system there that those who were serving him would have some sort of financial provision. And then verse 14, I think, is probably the most important one. Uh, It's probably the clearest one, Uh, It's Jesus is the one who said in verse 14, also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And you see that in a couple of places in the gospels, but in Matthew chapter 10, for instance, when he sends out the disciples, sends them out two by two, he says, when you get to a town, go there and Find somebody that's willing and you stay with them and they'll provide for you. I don't want you to take more than one coat. I don't want you to take any money. I don't want you to take any provisions with you because when you get to that town, that town will provide for you. And if they don't provide for you, you need to leave that town. That was Paul's instructions to the the 12 as he sent them out and to the other disciples, the 70 that he sent out originally, that you need to go and expect that your provision will be made for you in that community. And if they don't provide for you, that's a good hint that you probably could just go on to a different community. Now, I believe as he was sending them out, this idea that they should leave uh, is not a requirement or a command in the sense that it uh, was for all people for all time. But Paul's just making the point, even Jesus sent out his, his, his ministers with the intention that they would somehow be provided for in the midst of that. But Paul is making the point that he didn't do that. In verse 12, Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Uh, essentially, Paul could have uh, demanded of the people of Corinth, and, and maybe they would have even paid if he would have said, Look, do you not see what I'm doing for you? Do you not see it? And it's even in, more interesting in Paul's case because he's, at this point, this kind of feeble older man. They describe him as kind of this pudgy, short guy with big, bushy eyebrows and no other hair on his head, just his eyebrows. Uh, He's he's unable to see, so he can't even write these words for himself. Somebody has to write them down for him. And so he moves into this town, and he's like, got to get a job. This blind guy who's older, whose whole body is probably in pieces because of all the times he's been beaten for the gospel, and yet he would provide for himself. And nobody at that church in Corinth thought to themselves... You know, could we buy this guy a hamburger or something? <laughs> like. Sh- wow, is there something we could do for this guy? Could we give him a place to stay? But for whatever reason, in that particular town, they didn't. In other places, he would start that way, but oftentimes the people of the the synagogues or the people in the churches that were formed there would begin to provide for him, and he could stop doing that and focus in on the ministry. But he never demanded that of Corinth, and he gives his reason here so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. That's why he doesn't ask for it. And I think that's a good general rule, by the way, if you're ever thinking about ministry, um, to separate out in your mind the ministry you do from whether or not you ever get paid. And just be in the habit of doing ministry because that's what God called you to. And then if the place you're doing ministry uh, desires or decides to provide for you, that's when you accept it. Now, we are doing that just a little bit different. We have a couple of different church plants that we have uh, in this area And uh, so we have one church plant in Missouri. Uh, We don't uh, provide financially for him, but we do provide a monthly stipend that just goes to the church that they can use however they want. But the two church plants we have in this area, we started them out from the beginning as part-time employees of this church until their church could get to the point where they could provide for them. And for us, that was a way of actually training these new churches to know how to rightly provide for them. Now, I don't think it would have been best if those pastors we sent out had demanded it, but because we set it up that way, we were teaching them in advance how they're supposed to do these things. That was our way of helping them have a greater understanding of the circumstances. But Paul, in this case, says here, he says, I didn't even bring it up because I just didn't want to, to cause any hindrance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't want to in any way make people think, well, he's just coming to town to get our money. He's just preaching so he can buy another, you know, Lear jet or something, or Lear Donkey, I guess, in those days. But he's just trying to get, you know, something nice out of this. He's just in it for our money. No, we need to be in it for the spreading of the gospel. Now, all of that just sets up the point that he really wants to make, which is what he's now going to make in the rest of the passage. So, verse 15. Uh, but I have used none of these things. And I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For I preach the gospel. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me what then is my reward that when I preach the gospel I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel and that's really where Paul was he was trying to make this uh, point to the church in Corinth there look I have every single right to demand provision from you as a church But I determined the best thing for the gospel in your case was that I not demand that from you. Again, all of this, just an illustration of the point that was made in chapter 8. That sometimes we lay aside our freedoms for the good of others. And now he's specifically saying here in chapter 9... That he's been willing to lay aside his freedoms, not just for the the generic good of others, but for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If in any way the the thing that he's doing is actually making it harder for the gospel to go out, then he's going to get rid of that thing that makes it a stumbling block from somebody else hearing the gospel. And that's where you then find these pastors who find themselves in an awkward situation, Because they want to apply this in their own ministry, right? They want to look at the the ministry scenario they're in, just like I was trying to explain at the beginning of the service. In our ministry scenario, I tried to apply it one way by dressing a little nicer, and everybody right away said, you look awkward dressed like that. We preferred it when you looked awkward dressed the other way because I'm going to look awkward both ways, right? That's just what's going to happen. But it was just in every scenario, you kind of have to see the situation and say, what is the greatest way that I can advance the gospel? And it's interesting, too, as it plays out. You never think of clothing as that kind of a thing, um, but it really is interesting. In general, the people who are going to be most offended by a pastor who's not dressed up are the Christians. and The people who are going to be least offended and most welcomed by the pastor not dressing up is the unbeliever who stumbled into our church. It really is kind of a fascinating thing. I remember a couple of years ago, uh, we had somebody who had stopped by the church, and I I don't even remember why, Uh, it might have been a benevolent situation or something like that, Um, and Pastor Tom was uh, ministering to him in that moment, and he basically said, you know, you really should come to church here, and the guy was just like, yeah. I would not fit in in this church, just so you know. You guys don't want me here. Trust me. And uh, Tom's like, well, why? He's like, well, look at how I dress. And as they're doing that, Tom walks by, and I'm up here preaching, and I'm wearing the exact same hoodie that that guy was. (laughs) And Tom's like, really? We wouldn't accept you here? Look at our pastor. I was like, oh, I'm glad I could be so sloppy that I could encourage others to Christ. But... That's the balance that Paul is wanting the believers to strike. And so in the same sense, I'll use some extreme examples that will probably never happen in your life, but just to give you kind of the idea here, You know, if you're going to uh, be preaching the gospel um, at a, a youth camp, you probably shouldn't wear your three-piece suit. You kind of match the people that you're with. You do whatever you can to take hindrances out of the way. The, the example that Paul used is he felt like if he had gotten to Corinth and asked for them to financially provide for them, they would have immediately thought of him not as a minister of the gospel, but as a scam artist. And they would have just assumed that he was going to be using his, his preaching for the purpose of raising money. So it's, again, just this balance that he's trying to find. He's not trying to give us a hard and fast rule, you always should or always shouldn't be paid. He's trying to give us an example where we can think through it in our own lives. So now for you guys, you need to think through this in your own lives. How is it that you can present yourself to the people you want to to see saved? Now this is kind of a long-term problem that us Christians have had. We try very hard to clean the fish before we catch them. and That's really a hard thing to do if you've ever tried to clean a fish before you catch it. It just doesn't work, right? Well, that's what we do. We're supposed to be fishers of men, right? But we're trying to get these people to change everything about their lifestyle, and then they can come to church. Change everything about their lifestyle, and then they can receive the gospel. That's completely backwards, It's completely backwards. We have to be able to meet people where they are with the gospel. Listen to how Paul's going to say it here. uh, This next section here. in Verse 22 is where he's ultimately going to say it, but I want to start in verse 19. He says, For though I am free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became a Jew so that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I become weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Paul becomes all things to all people so that he might save some. Now, some people would look at that and say, You're a hypocrite, you're a poser. Uh, To a certain extent, that's true, but what you're really doing is meeting people where they are. And so Paul gives several examples. When I'm hanging out with Jews, oy they am I Jewish. I'm the most Jewish Jew there is when I'm hanging out with the Jews. When I'm hanging out with the Gentiles, pulled pork for lunch it is. I become all things to all people so that some might get saved. When I'm hanging out with those who are all about the law, Paul would follow the law, the Old Testament laws, even though he knows he's not required to follow them, but it gave him an opportunity to be trusted by them enough that he could share, you know all these laws were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Gives him the opportunity. When he hangs out with people that don't understand the Old Testament law, he takes the tassels off of his shirt, takes off his little Yamaka. I always want to say Yamaha, but that's different. His little Yamaka. he takes off all his Jewish attire and he kind of dresses more like the Gentiles. Uh, have you ever seen this? I always think it's funny. You'll see pictures of, uh, you know, and this is probably going back to the 50s and things, of these foreign missionaries that'll go to Africa. And they'll show up in Africa to a village of villagers. And they'll put on their three-piece suit, just like they were preaching on Sunday morning. Do you do you think the people there are like, I can relate to this guy? All of their illustrations. Well, back at home when I was trying to fix my car, and these people are like, You're what now? (laughs) They just can't relate. They're, They're different people. The most successful missionaries integrate themselves into the culture in which they're serving. They become like the people that they seek to save. Now, where would we have seen that example in history? Would it be that God became like us so that he could save us? Isn't that the ultimate example of this? That Jesus being God lowered himself to become like one of us so that he might save us. Can you imagine the God of the universe having to be born, having to go through the the whole difficulty of birth, having to learn to walk, having to learn to use the restroom, having to learn to eat, having to learn to talk? God subjected himself to all of that so that he might save the people he was becoming like. That's the ultimate example of this, of Jesus becoming all things to all men so that by all means he might save some. So much so that he became a man. One of the more disturbing things I think I see in missionary work is when somebody moves into a country and after they've been there for four or five years, they start to church and that church just looks like an American church. It's all backwards to me. And so you see all these people who, who live one way all week long, but they've scrimped and saved and done everything they can so that they can buy a shirt and tie so they can go to church now that they're Christian. We're not, we're not Christianizing them. We're not making them more like Christ. We're making them more Western. We're making them more American. That's messed up. That's backwards thinking because it confuses people and it makes them think that if I want to be a Christian, I have to dress a certain way. That's not how you become like Jesus Christ, is it? No, we dress ourselves in good works. We dress ourselves in grace and in mercy. Now, if we can become all things to all people so that some might be saved, all the glory in that circumstance now goes to Jesus Christ. And we help people become more like him instead of more like us. Do you see how that works out? That's, to me, much more powerful. I think this is probably a thing that gets um, harped on a little bit more in Calvary chapels than they do in some churches. But Calvary chapels, when they all started at kind of the the beginning of that Jesus movement there, um, you know, Pastor Chuck Smith starts this church in this little surfing town and um, he's a three-piece suit guy. That's just who he is. And he sings his hymns and all this stuff. Uh, But what happened was he would go down to the boardwalk and he would see all these hippies and all these surfers just walking. And he and his wife would begin to pray, like if we could just save one of them, then they would bring their friends with them. That was kind of his prayer. And so he starts praying for these guys. And then you have this, this thing that happens where somebody, in fact, does get saved, he comes on fire. He starts bringing to Christ all these other people who are they're hippies, they're surfers, and they start inviting them to church. And now at Pastor Chuck's church, you have Pastor Chuck in his three-piece suit, which he doesn't wear. In, well, he doesn't. He's dead now, but he quit wearing and started wearing his Hawaiian shirts. But these these people come in. These hippies, some of them haven't bathed in a while. Some of them stoned out of their mind. Many of them not wearing shoes and socks. Some of them not wearing shirts. And they show up to church on Sunday morning. And it's, uh, it's the old joke when blue hairs collide, right? You have the, the blue-haired old lady and then the blue-haired punk kid. And they, they run across each other. And all of a sudden, what happened? People started complaining. Well, we spend all this money on carpet. And these guys come in here and, and they don't even have shoes on. And Joke said, you're right. We need to get this carpet out of here. (laughs) Uh, These people come in here, and they're dressed like this. You're right. We look foolish to them, don't we? Uh, These people come in here with all their, their hippie music. You're right. We should probably have them write some Christian songs. Before long, they're leading the services, and then they're sent out. Now, we have a new thing that's happening in Calvary Chapel, though. All those old hippies came to Christ and they think, these dumb young kids with their skinny jeans. What's wrong with them? They had tattoos all over their arms. Just a bunch of pretty boys. Isn't that how you got saved? Somebody came to you that you could relate to. And they earned the opportunity to prepare the gospel for you. Verse 24. Do you not know those who run in a race? All run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul basically says this. He's like, you guys just need a better strategy if you wanna win people to Jesus Christ. You need to, you, need to, you need to think this through. How can you, it's called winning somebody to Jesus Christ. How can you win them? You have to put in the work and it may cost you and you may have to be a little bit different. I, I had to adjust my teaching early on when I first started in youth ministry. Every single example that I used, every illustration was off the football field. And every time I would start into one of my football illustrations, half of the guys and all of the girls were like, right to sleep. They didn't care about football. I don't know why. You have to kind of begin to think like the people that you're ministering to so that you can get their attention, so that you can help them see it from their perspective. It's a strange thing. Now, each one of you is going to have to decide how to apply that principle. I can't apply it for you. I don't know your life. I don't know the people you're interacting with. I don't know the people that you're hoping to save. But I would say this, that you can set aside all the things that are not gospel things and say any of those things I'm willing to surrender so that I can bring the gospel to them. And so if you find yourself, here's one that I've, I've heard of a number of times. Um, and I actually heard it at this conference I was at last week, how it worked out really well for a guy. But uh, I've heard of this several times, that guys will go away on work trips. And then at the end of the day, everybody says, hey, we're going to go to the bar. Now you can say, and I think quite rightly, I don't really go to the bar. No, thank you. But if you've determined in your heart that you want to help lead these people to Christ, you can go to the bar and order hot wings. You can go to the bar and say, hey, I'll be your designated driver tonight. And if you know how to do this, you can drink in such a way as not to get drunk. I'm not gonna draw that line for you. If that's your purpose to win, then you've now earned a conversation with them. You've earned enough relationship with them where you can speak to them in a way they couldn't have been spoken to before because they're gonna listen but if you just show up in your three-piece suit swinging your Bible at them, there's this verse and this verse and this verse. They will duck you every time. They will see you coming down the hallway and they will go the other direction. I'm not asking you to do sinful things, but I'm saying you can set aside some secondary issues for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't know what that looks like in your life. I was at a conference in, in uh Colorado last week, and there was a pastor there, and he was put into this weird situation. He's got this tiny little church uh, in, um, I can't remember where it is now. It's in Telluride, Colorado. He's got this tiny little church in Telluride, Colorado. Uh, He's moved there. He's got a million dollars in medical debt, and he's trying to get this church going between he and his wife, right? And uh, there's a group of guys there who invite him to a Super Bowl party at a bar, and he's like, great opportunity for me to share the gospel with these people, Terrible opportunity is the new pastor in town to be seen at the bar. And so he was kind of back and forth. He actually drove there. He walks up the door. Nah, I'm not going to go in there. And he's kind of walking away. And then one of the guys comes in at that time. He goes, buddy, you made it. And he brought him in. And he says, it's the most uncomfortable Super Bowl ever. They're watching the game. They've got, because uh, it's a ski town, they've got this giant ski on the bar. And it's got shot glasses glued to it, and so they would fill that up with the booze, and each one would get in front of a shot glass, and they would lift the ski, and everybody would drink at the same time, and he's just sitting in the back going, I'm in so much trouble. (laughs) Well, worked out for him pretty good, though. At the end of the night, they said, buddy, we heard you have some medical debt. How much is that? $970,000. We like you, and they wrote a check for $970,000. I don't think he felt so bad about going to the bar after that. (laughs) Which then, by the way, freed him up to minister in new ways and in new places and with new people. You have to find that. I don't know what it is in your life. Maybe it's your coworkers always go to lunch, and you're like, I don't want to be seen with those guys in public. Maybe it's okay to be seen with those guys in public, but you don't understand the stories they tell and the words they say. Believe me, I do. Believe me, retired military, I've heard the stories, some of them I saw. But you earn the right to speak into their life. And once you've earned that right, you can share the gospel with them. It's the same way it works with your grandkids, right? You want your grandkids to love Jesus. Where do you start? You get down on your knees, and you grab the little truck, or you have tea time with them, and you just start a conversation. And once they trust you, they'll believe anything you say, even got your nose right? Whoever it is you're trying to reach, find some area of commonality. But if you can't find anything in common, do something they like that you don't like. Become like them in that so that they could hear the gospel, so that they might be saved. Amen? Sometimes we can set aside our rights for the sake of the gospel. Heavenly Father, so thankful for this opportunity. Uh, Lord, I I like to think in terms of deployment. As I'm envisioning this group of people today, they've been uh, deployed with a weapon, with a tool, with the opportunity to surrender some of their, their own desires for the sake of ministering to somebody that nobody else is gonna to minister to, for the sake of sharing the gospel with somebody that they love, but they get, seem to get a breakthrough. Lord, would you show them what that thing is they can do, uh, that, that attitude that can be removed, that opportunity that can be taken, so that they can share with them, so that they can do this in such a way that they may win these people to your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, my prayer and my hope is that we will always be a people who seek not to always defend our rights, but to know when to surrender our rights for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the the weaker brother, and for your glory. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.